Section fifty eight of The Mysteries of London, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathleen. The Mysteries of London, Volume two by W. M. Reynolds. Another visit to Buckingham Palace. It was the evening following the one the incidents of which occupied the preceding chapter beneath a sofa in the ballroom of buckingham palace henry holford lay concealed it would be a mere repetition of statements made in former portions of this work were we to describe the means by which the young man obtained access to the most private parts of the royal dwelling we may however observe that he had paid frequent visits to the palace since the occasion when we first saw him enter those sacred precincts at the commencement of january eighteen thirty nine and that he was as familiar with the interior of the sovereign's abode even to its most retired chambers as any of its numerous inmates he had run many risks of discovery but a species of good fortune seemed to attend upon him in these strange and romantic ventures and those frequent alarms had never as yet terminated in his detection thus he became emboldened in his intrusions and he now lay beneath the sofa in the ballroom with no more apprehension than he would have entertained if some authority in the palace had actually connived at his presence there it was nine o'clock in the evening and the ballroom was brilliantly illuminated but as yet the low-born potboy was its sole occupant not long however was he doomed to that solitude by a strange coincidence the two noble ladies whose conversation had so much interested him on the occasion of his first visit to the palace entered the room shortly after nine o'clock he recognized their voices immediately and he was delighted at their arrival for their former dialogues had awakened the most lively sentiments of curiosity in his mind but since his intrusion in january eighteen thirty nine he had never seen nor heard them in his subsequent visits to the royal dwelling until the present occasion and now as they advanced through the room together he held his breath to catch the words that fell from them the dinner-party was tiresome to-day my dear countess observed the duchess her majesty did not appear to be in good spirits alas exclaimed the lady thus addressed our gracious sovereign's melancholy fits occur at less distant intervals as she grows older and yet her majesty has every earthly reason to be happy said the duchess the prince appears to be devotedly attached to her and the princess royal is a sweet babe worldly prosperity will not always ensure felicity returned the countess and this your grace must have perceived amongst the circle of your acquaintance her majesty is a prey to frequent fits of despondency which are distressing to the faithful subjects who have the honour to be near the royal person she will sit for an hour at a time in moody contemplation of that sweet babe and her countenance then wears an expression of such profound such plaintive such touching melancholy that i have frequently wept to behold her thus what can be the cause of this intermittent despondency inquired the duchess it is constitutional answered the countess the fit comes from her majesty at moments when she is surrounded by all the elements of pleasure happiness and joy it is a dark spirit against which no mind however powerful can wrestle the only method of mitigating the violence of its attacks is the bustle of travelling 
then novelty change of scene exercise and the demonstrations of popular devotion seem to relieve our beloved sovereign from the influence of that morbid moody melancholy i believe that when we conversed upon this topic on a former occasion it must be at least two years ago your ladyship hinted at the existence of hereditary idiosyncrasies in the royal family observed the duchess inquiringly indeed added her grace hastily i well remember that you alluded to the unfortunate attachment of george the third for a certain quakeress yes hannah lightfoot to whom the monarch when a prince was privately united answered the countess his baffled love the necessity which compelled him to renounce one to whom he was devotedly attached and the constant dread which he entertained lest the secret of this marriage should transpire acted upon his mind in a manner that subsequently produced those dread results which are matters of history you allude to his madness said the duchess with a shudder yes your grace that madness which is alas hereditary replied the countess solemnly but george the third had many many domestic afflictions oh if you knew all you would not be surprised that he had lost his reason the prolificacy of some of his children most of them was alone sufficient to turn his brain many of those instances of prolificacy have transpired and although the public have not been able to arrive at any positive proofs respecting the matters i can nevertheless assure your grace that such proofs are in existence and in my possession your ladyship once before hinted as much to me and i must confess that without having any morbid inclination for vulgar scandal i feel some curiosity in respect to those matters some day i will place in your hand papers of a fearful import in connection with the royal family returned the countess your grace will then perceive that prolificacy the most abandoned crimes the most heinous vices the most depraved characterize nearly all the children of george the third there is one remarkable fact relative to that prince's marriage with hannah lightfoot the royal marriage act was not passed until thirteen years after this union and could not therefore set it aside and yet hannah lightfoot was still living when the prince espoused charlotte sophia princess of mecklenburg strelitz in seventeen sixty one is this possible exclaimed the duchess profoundly surprised it is possible it is true said the countess emphatically in seventeen seventy two the royal marriage act was passed and provided that no member of the royal family should contract a marriage without the sovereign's consent this measure was enacted for several reasons but principally because the king's two brothers had formed private matrimonial connections the duke of cumberland with mrs horton a widow and the duke of gloucester with the widow of the earl of waldegrave the act certainly appears to be most cruel and oppressive said the duchess inasmuch as it interferes with the tenderest affections and most charming of human sympathies feelings which royalty has in common with all the rest of mankind i cordially agree with your grace observed the countess the law is barbarous monstrous revolting and its evil effects were evidenced by almost every member of the family of george the third in the first place the prince of wales afterwards george the fourth was privately united to mrs fitzherbert at the house of that lady's uncle lord sefton fox sheridan and burke were present at the ceremony 
in addition to my mother and several relations of the bride mr fox handed her into the carriage and the happy pair proceeded to richmond where they passed a week or ten days queen charlotte was made acquainted with the marriage she sent for her son and demanded an explanation the prince avowed the truth your grace has of course read the discussion which took place in connection with this subject in the house of commons in seventeen eighty seven mr roll the member for devonshire mysteriously alluded to the union mr fox rose up and denied it but from that day forth mrs fitzherbert never spoke to fox again sheridan let the truth escape him he said a lady who has been alluded to is without reproach and is entitled to the truest and most general respect how would mrs fitzherbert have been without reproach or entitled to respect if she were not married to the prince but i have proofs convincing proofs that such an union did actually take place although it was certainly null and void in consequence of the marriage act it nevertheless subsisted according to the feelings and inclinations of the parties interested said the duchess and it was based on honour if on no legal principle alas whispered the countess casting a rapid glance around the word honour must not be mentioned in connection with the name of george the fourth it pains me to speak ill of the ancestors of our lovely queen but if we converse on the subject at all truth must influence our observations the entire life of george the fourth was one of prolificacy and crime often have i marvelled how one possessing a soul so refined as georgiana the beautiful duchess of devonshire could have resigned herself to such a degraded voluptuary such a low debauchee yet she was his queen of love surrounded by her graces who however bore the modern names of craven winham and jersey carlton house has indeed beheld strange and varied scenes said the duchess low orgies and voluptuous revels music floating here dice rattling there the refinements of existence in one room and the most degraded dissipation in another such was the case observed the countess but let us return to the consequences of the royal marriage act rumour has told much in connection with the coupled names of the duke of york and mrs clark the late king william and mrs jordan and so well known are these facts that i not dwell upon them the matrimonial connections of the duke of sussex first with lady augusta murray and afterwards with lady cecilia underwood are all matters resting upon something more solid than mere conjecture and the duke of cumberland present king of hanover said the duchess inquiringly it is dangerous to speak of him whispered the countess because it is impossible to utter a word in his favour you surely cannot believe all the tales that have been circulated against him exclaimed the duchess earnestly watching the countenance of her companion as if to anticipate her reply does your grace particularly allude to the death of Celis? asked the countess turning her head so as to meet the glance of her friend because continued she without waiting for a reply i should be sorry nay nothing should induce me to state in plain terms my impression relative to that event i may however allude to a few material points sir everard holm the medical attendant of the duke of cumberland frequently observed that too much pains were taken to involve that affair in mystery and another eminent physician since dead declared that the head of Celis was nearly severed from his body and that no man could inflict upon himself a wound of such a depth 
the duke of cumberland stated that his valet sellis entered his bedchamber and attacked him with a sword and that having failed in his murderous purposes he retired to his own room and committed suicide sir everard home distinctly proved on the inquest that the corpse was found lying on its side on the bed and yet he had cut his own throat so effectually that he could not have changed his position after inflicting the wound i will not however make any observations upon that fact and this statement which seems so conflicting the subject is almost too awful to deal with there is still one remarkable point to which the attention of those who discuss the dark affair should be directed the hand basin in Celis's room was half full of blood-stained water and it is very clear that the miserable wretch himself could not have risen to wash his hands after the wound was inflicted in his throat but let us not dwell on this horrible event the mere mention of it makes me shudder the king of hanover has been at least unfortunate in many circumstances of his life if not guilty observed the duchess because his enemies have insisted strongly upon the suspicious nature of the incident of which we have been speaking the more so because it was known that the duke of cumberland had intrigued with the wife of salis returned the countess as your grace declares that exalted personage has been indeed unfortunate if nothing more in eighteen thirty lord graves committed suicide and the improper connection existing between the duke of cumberland and lady graves was notorious i well remember said the duchess that the conduct of the duke and lady graves was far from prudent to say the least of it after that melancholy event scarcely were the remains of the self-slain nobleman cold in the tomb ere his widow and her illustrious lover were seen driving about together in the neighbourhood of hampton court where lady graves had apartments true exclaimed the duchess but we have travelled a long way from our first topic the royal marriage act we were speaking of its pernicious effects in respect to the family of george the third and that was a fine family too my deceased mother often expatiated and her secret papers dwell at length upon the charms of the princesses alas how sorrowfully were they situated in the bloom of youth in the glow of health with warm temperaments and ardent imaginations which received encouragement from the voluptuous indolence of their lives they were denied the privileges of the meanest peasant girl in the realm they were unable to form matrimonial connections where their inclinations prompted them the consequences were those which might have been anticipated the honour of the princesses became sacrificed to illicit passion passion which was still natural although illicit those amours were productive of issue but the offspring of none has created any sensation in the world save in the instance of captain garth the son of the princess sophia relative to the mysterious birth of that individual the secret papers left by my mother and the existence of which is even unknown to my husband contain some strange some startling facts conceive the embarrassment the perilous nature of the situation in which the princess was suddenly involved when during a journey from london to some fashionable watering-place she found herself overtaken with the pangs of premature maternity she who up to that moment had managed to conceal her condition even from the attendance upon her person then imagine this princess a daughter of the sovereign of the realm compelled to put up at a miserable roadside inn forced to make a confidant of her lady in attendance 
and obliged also to entrust her secret to the surgeon of the village where her child was born but you shall read the narrative with all its details in my private papers what opinion has your ladyship formed relative to the circumstances which led to the bill of pains and penalties instituted against queen caroline the spouse of george the fourth inquired the duchess i firmly believe that most unfortunate and most persecuted princess to have been completely innocent answered the countess with solemn emphasis from the first she was hateful to her husband when the earl of malmesbury who was sent to germany to escort the princess to england arrived with her in london the prince of wales repaired instantly to pay his respects to his intended bride but scarcely had he set eyes on her when he conceived a feeling of ineffable dislike and turning towards the earl he said harris a glass of brandy i am ill your grace has heard of love at first sight here was hatred at first sight every thing attending that marriage was inauspicious for if the princess had the misfortune to make an unfavorable impression on the prince his royal highness wantonly wounded her feelings by grossly manifesting his dislike towards her on all occasions on the bridal night he drank so deeply that he fell on a sofa in the nuptial chamber and there slept with his clothes on but to pass over many years let us come to the circumstances which led to the memorable trial of queen caroline during her continental travels baron bergami was presented to her he was a man of honorable character good family but ruined fortunes his condition excited the compassion of the generous-hearted caroline and she gave him a situation in her household his conversation was fascinating and he was frequently her companion inside the travelling chariot perhaps an english lady would have acted with more prudence but your grace will remember that there is a wide distinction between our manners and customs and those of the continent we see improprieties in action which foreigners view as harmless courtesies of innocent proofs of friendly interest we also seem ready to meet suspicions of evil halfway foreigners with more generous frankness and candor say evil be to him who evil thinks but the marriage was hateful to king george the fourth and he was determined to dissolve it he was resolved to sacrifice his wife to his aversions she was to be made a victim then commenced that atrocious subordination of perjured witnesses which gave a color to the proceedings against the unfortunate queen her slightest levities were tortured into proofs of guilt her generosity towards bergami was branded as an illicit passion the witnesses made statements which proved how well they had been tutored they overacted their parts and in their zeal to serve a master who paid them for their perjury they deposed to more than they could possibly have known even if the main accusation had been true the nation was indignant for the people your grace are possessed of much chivalry and noble generosity of character then too rose the portentous voices of denman and broham calling upon the hidden accuser to come forth and confront his victim oh it was a vile proceeding and i as a woman as a wife feel my blood boiling in my veins when i think of all the foul wrongs which were heaped upon the most injured of my sex that trial said the duchess who was naturally of a more cautious disposition than her companion that trial was certainly a dark blot on the page which records the annals of george the fourth's reign 
say rather your grace exclaimed the countess the blackest of the innumerable black deeds which characterized his existence before the accusation in respect to brigami was ever thought of a charge was concocted against that injured lady and commissioners were appointed to investigate it thus your grace perceives her bad husband was determined to ruin her that charge accused her of having been delivered of a male child at her abode at blackheath and the affair certainly appeared suspicious at first but how triumphantly was it met how readily was it refuted how easily was it explained the injured lady had taken a fancy to the infant of poor but respectable people named archer living in that neighborhood and she had undertaken to adopt and provide for the boy the unfortunate princess felt the necessity of loving something since her own child was taken from her thus was her goodness towards william archer converted into a weapon wherewithal to assail her in the most tender point her husband's agents circulated the most odious calumnies concerning her and even improperly coupled her name with that of sir sidney smith the hero of acre but the archer story fell to the ground and the Bergami scandal was subsequently propagated with a zeal which evinced the determination of george the fourth to ruin caroline of brunswick there was a pause in the conversation the duchess who was possessed of a strong inclination for the mysterious or scandalous narratives connected with the family of george the third was so impressed by the vehemence and confident emphasis with which her companion had denounced the prolificacy of george the fourth that a species of awe and undefined alarm came over her it suddenly appeared as if it were a sacrilege thus to canvass the character of that deceased monarch within the very palace where he himself had dwelt and she hesitated to make any remark or ask any question that might lead to a continuation of the same topic on her side the countess who was much older than the duchess and more deeply initiated in the mysteries of courts had become plunged into a deep reverie for she possessed a generous mind and never could ponder upon the wrongs of the murdered queen caroline without experiencing the most profound indignation and sorrow the reader may probably deem it somewhat extraordinary that ladies attached to the court should thus freely discuss the most private affairs and canvass the characters of deceased members of the royal family but we can positively assert that nowhere are scandal and tittle-tattle more extensively indulged in than amongst the members of that circle of courtiers and female sycophants who crowd about the sovereign the conversation of the duchess and countess was not renewed on the present occasion for while they were yet plunged each in the depths of her own particular meditations the regal train entered the ballroom and all this while henry holford remained concealed beneath the sofa victoria leant upon the arm of her consort and the illustrious party was preceded by the lord chamberlain and the lord steward the queen and the prince proceeded to the reserved seats which were slightly elevated in a recess and were covered with white satin embroidered in silver then the magnificent ballroom presented a truly fairy spectacle plumes were waving diamonds were sparkling bright eyes were glancing and music floated on the air the spacious apartment was crowded with nobles and gentlemen in gorgeous uniforms or court dresses and with ladies in the most elegant attire that french fashions could suggest or french milliners achieve all those striking or attractive figures and all the splendors of their appearance were multiplied by the brilliant mirrors to an illimitable extent 
the orchestra extended across one end of the ballroom and the musicians had entered by a side door almost at the same moment that the royal procession made its appearance in the rooms adjoining the corps of gentlemen-at-arms and the yeomen of the guard were on duty and in the hall the band of the royal regiment of horse guards was in attendance the queen and the prince danced in the first quadrille and afterwards they indulged in their favorite waltz the freuschen mein zeal at the termination of each dance the royal party passed into the picture gallery where they promenaded amidst a wilderness of flowers and aromatic shrubs then indeed the odor breathing exotics the whispering leaves the light of the pendant lamps mellowed so as to give full effect to the portraits of those who were once famous or once beautiful the ribboned or gartered nobles the blaze of female loveliness the streams of melody the presence of all possible elements of splendor harmony and pleasure combined to render the whole scene one of enchantment and seemed to realize the most glowing and brilliant visions which oriental writers ever shadowed forth the dancing was renewed in the ballroom and as the beauteous ladies of the court swam and turned in graceful mazes it appeared as if the art had become elevated into the harmony of motion dancing there was something more than mechanical it was a true a worthy and a legitimate sister of poetry and music at twelve o'clock the doors of the supper-room were thrown open and in that gorgeous banqueting hall the crimson draperies the service of gold and the massive table ornaments were lighted up by chinese lanterns and silver candelabra of exquisite workmanship a splendid row of gold cups was laid on each side of the table on the right of each plate stood a decanter of water a finger-glass half filled with tepid water a champagne-glass a tumbler and three wine-glasses numerous servants in magnificent liveries were in attendance no one asked for anything the servants offered the various dishes of which the guests partook or which they rejected according to their taste no healths were drunk during the queen's presence nor was the ceremony of taking wine with each other observed not even on the part of the gentleman with the lady whom he had handed into the room the domestics whose especial duty it was to serve the wine never filled a glass until it was quite empty nor did any guest ask for wine but when the servant approached him merely stated the kind of wine he chose after sitting for about an hour the queen rose and was conducted to the yellow drawing-room by prince albert the guests all rising as the royal couple retired then the servants filled the glasses and the lord steward said the queen the health was drunk standing in silence and with a gentle inclination of the head in a few minutes afterwards the gentlemen conducted the ladies into the yellow drawing-room where coffee and liqueurs were served the harp piano and songs by some of the ladies occupied another hour at the expiration of which the guests took their departure holford had now been concealed nearly five hours beneath the sofa in the ballroom and he was cramped stiff and wearied during that interval he had experienced a variety of emotions wonder at the strange revelations which he had heard from the lips of the countess ineffable delight in contemplating the person of his sovereign envy at the exalted prosperity of prince albert thrilling excitement at the fairy-like aspect of the enchanting dance sensations of unknown rapture occasioned by the soft strains of the music and boundless disgust for his own humble obscure and almost serf-like condition 
during those intervals when the broil party and the guests were promenading in the picture gallery or were engaged in the supper apartment and the drawing-room holford longed to escape from his hiding-place and retreat to the lumber-closet where he was in the habit of concealing himself on the occasion of his visits to the palace but there were too many persons about to render such a step safe it was not therefore until a very late hour or rather an early one in the morning that he was able to enter the supper-room and help himself to some of the dainties left upon the board having done which he retreated to his nook in the most retired part of the palace End of Another Visit to Buckingham Palace